Hi, my name is Sydney Mitchell. Hi, I'm Matthew Brickman, Florida Supreme Court mediator. Welcome to the Mediate This podcast, where we discuss everything mediation and conflict resolution. So I'm joined today by a special guest, Ginger Gentile. And uh, Ginger, I am so excited to have you here. Um, just for just a quick opening, I want you to get into you know describing more of what you do or whatnot. Um, but Ginger, I know that um, you're director of a phenomenal documentary called Erasing Family, uh, which I highly suggest everybody go see. Um, I was actually, I'm going to talk to my marketing guy. I may actually put a link on my website to your uh, documentary because it, I mean, every client that I have, every family that I mediate with, they need to see this. Um, it is a phenomenal documentary, but you've been featured on a number of different things. You were on uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, Red Table Talk with, I think, one or two of the, uh, the kids from your documentary, correct? That is correct. Well, thank you for such a warm introduction. And Red Table Talk decided to base a whole show on the documentary, in part because, as you can imagine, getting people to go public with this is very difficult to talk about their own family issues. And so I think after the production tried to find people, they ended up using a lot of my characters, which was great, uh, to talk about the healing they went through. And I love that the people who I work with in the documentary since the documentary have continued healing and continued reuniting their family members because all of this messy divorce, conflict, parental alienation, estrangement, the solution is to learn new skills, learn a new mindset and to heal. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm very upfront about this. As a filmmaker, you create a story so you can't, because I think what's different is there's a lot of people who are parents who make films about this subject. My criticism is when you're so in it, you want to give information. So like some people would be like, oh, you don't really go into like how to diagnose parental alienation or all this stuff. I'm like, it's not a training film. Yeah. The film I, I created um, actually for young people. Yeah. To help them reconnect. So that's why it's all about healing. And also, you know, sometimes I made the courts, of, um, I have my criticism of the courts, the bad guys. So that way they're not blaming either parent. Um, so so that's definitely was something when I made the film to make it more yeah. healing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of films out there are YouTube videos. They're more like, this is how you diagnose this. This sure. is the research, which is great, but this is not, yeah. not that. Um, I made a film after that, Erasing Family. That was for hire, and um, I felt burnt out by the whole topic. And then I returned and really worked on the worst cases. And a lot of what I teach people is like, you can't be right. You got to work with the other party. And they'll say, but they're borderline and high conflict. I'm like, I'm not saying they're not. Um, but so I was like, you know, what if you just said like, hey, that's a great idea. Let me think about it. I'm like, well, it's a bad idea. Like, just try it. And like, just things like that really help these parents. Um, get through some very tough situations. So let's back up. So how did you get into filmmaking and why a documentary then, for the listeners that haven't seen it yet, then why a documentary on parental alienation and, and whatnot? Well, that's a great question. So I became a filmmaker because I had moved to Argentina. And this, is, this is actually in a racing family. And I was like, well, what can I do? Because I used to be, I, I wrote a lot 
I'm like, well, I can't really write in English because I always wanted to participate in the culture where I live. So I got into filmmaking, worked my way up the film industry, was making uh, was making films when I met a man. And the first thing he told me, and this was, became a romantic relationship, and he was the producer of one of my films too. The first thing he told me is I haven't seen my daughter in six years. Like most people, I said, well, you must have a bad lawyer. There must be some issue in the courthouse. I actually was a legal translator at that time. Like, let's go to the courthouse. We'll work it all out. And then I figured out it wasn't that easy. And without getting into all the details of his case, it was a very extreme case. And I began to meet other dads going through the same thing. And I say dads because when I lived in Argentina, custody automatically went to the mother. Okay. So So there it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing, but it also was a cultural thing in the U.S. until maybe 50, 60 years ago. Correct. Um, with the tender years doctrine. Correct. So they still have the tender years doctrine. And no allowed, joint custody was not allowed. So you could privately do that, but you couldn't have that written into a decree. And when we made that, the first film on this topic, um, A Racing Dad, came out in 2014. And it's a very different film. It's more like a true crime film. There, It's a documentary, so it's all real, but it, it talks about how the people who were trained to protect kids were... It's going to sound pretty extreme. They were trained by a pedophile who used his position to accuse other people of pedophilia to hide what he was doing. So everybody trained in the psychological establishment in Argentina was trained by a known pedophile who's in jail. Wow. And we also showed the film how a dad went to um, the police and was like, my ex wants to kill our six-year-old son and is threatening to. They do nothing and then she does with like all the writing on the wall. Like if you can't, if I can't have him, nobody will. Um, so it's much more of a true crime film. There's not a happy ending at the end. All the dads are there at the end saying, I still can't see my kid. No one wants to make any changes. And when the film came out, it was actually the first film censored in Argentina since democracy came back. Wow. It was a huge controversial film. Everyone's always surprised when I say it's a film that got censored because people think, you know, I was like against the police or the government or something. And... The good news about a censored film is everybody wants to see it. So topics like high-conflict divorce, parental alienation, estrangement became front-page news. And the law changed to allow for joint custody and took the gender bias out of the law. So that was a really big change. Um, For people wondering, um, my romantic partner, who's also the uh, producer of the film, we're no longer together, but he did reunite with his daughter after 12 years of no contact. They now have a great relationship. And I moved back to the United States and decided to do a follow-up film, which became a racing family. And the first thing that I did is I always take a deep dive in the subject. So I saw two things that were very different from Argentina. One, social media by that point had become huge. We forget that there was a point where it wasn't huge. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so kids as young as seven, were posting videos about they couldn't see a brother or sister, they couldn't see a parent, um, you know, um, asking judges to change rulings. So I was like, okay, I can actually reach children or young adults, whereas before I was like, how do I find kids who are alienated? Sure. Possible. And then the other thing that I saw is about half the people who contacted me with stories, a lot of kids contacted me, about half were moms. 
Now, I don't want to make a statistical inference on who reaches out because sometimes people, more people from a certain group will reach out for help sure. than those who are affected. But about half to 60% of my current followers and people who I work with are moms. So this is not a gender issue. Um, I do think dads can face additional biases in the courts, especially in some districts. Sometimes moms can for working and for other reasons. But there is a general bias against dads. But what we're talking about with um, what's often referred to as parental alienation or alienating behaviors or refuse and resist is there's a parent that for either practical reasons or deep emotional trauma needs to cut the other parent out. Yeah. And that can happen to both men and women. Yeah. When you moved back from Argentina, where did you? Where in the United States did you go? I went to San Diego because my family had moved to San Diego. Okay, so when you were doing research and stuff, because um, because I know in the film there, I think there was California, there was references to some in Florida, there was Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So, but I noticed that like in Canada. yeah, and, and yeah, and 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 in Canada, there's also the reference to Sweden. Um, and in Swedish law, almost mirrors Florida law in many aspects. I did a Swedish divorce many years ago using my iChat mediation platform. But the main, like, one of the most touching stories in there was the father who was the barber cosmetologist in California with his daughter. And that was California law. That was California judges um, and whatnot. Um, so, so I guess, and I guess as you were looking around doing this in the various places, of course, you know, noticing that family law varies state to state. Oh, it not only varies state to state, um, after the film, I, I've served as the executive director of the National Parents Organization okay. that works on shared parenting legislation. It's not only state to state, it's jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Yeah. So you have guidelines in different jurisdictions. So the whole thing is very confusing and the big takeaways: there's no scientific basis for any of this. Why in one county, dad gets 10% of the time, the next county over, he gets 50% as a standard guideline. Um, and people often default to the guidelines just naturally. Yeah. Um, so it sets a precedent. That's what people think that they are entitled to, and they often don't ask for more. And if they ask for more, then there could be more of a battle. But state law is very different. Also, people kind of see California as a model because they do have a lot of 50-50. Divorce is a big industry there. So like people kind of see it as they're more progressive. But there are problems in in California, which I yeah. saw in the film. But I didn't want to, it wasn't about like one district or one judge. It was yeah. more like an overlying system. Also something that was interesting in the film, you know, people watch TV, they watch, you know, court shows, and they think, oh, yeah, I'm going to file, I'll be in front of the judge, the judge will rule. No, that is not how it happens. It takes months to get in front of the judge. And in the state of Florida a number of years ago, but I'm, I'm talking a number of years ago. I'm thinking like less than five. So it's not that many number, right? Yeah. The legislature had to actually pass a law to make judges rule expeditiously because they were just taking their time. But they were also overloaded. And so, you know, yeah. it, like, like people would finally get in front of a judge. And the judge doesn't say, okay, thank you for putting on your show. This is my finding. It could take six or nine months after your hearing to finally even get a hearing or, I mean, to finally get a final. And it just leaves everybody, the children, even the parents, in this holding state going, 
what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and at that point, you know, it can it can be, and I, I tell people all the time, very dangerous. You know, I mean, it can be dangerous. It's dangerous mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, it can be. Um, Well, you have no rules set often more. They just ask for more and more evaluations, which can be very expensive. Um, Sometimes these evaluators bring their own biases. And um, I've heard cases of people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on evaluators where they will talk to everybody in the family ex-boyfriends and girlfriends I'm just like what are we trying to see with this yeah I mean is a parent a danger to a child is a parent unhealthy for a child but what their relationship was like to their boyfriend 20 years ago but but that's you know you get to deal with that so so it, it is very dangerous and also you set a precedent yeah because if one parent has the kid most of the time then sometimes judges will say, well, the kid seems to be doing okay with this. Let's just keep the status quo. Yeah. Um, Here's what's interesting in Florida. I know you had said something about California leading when it comes to mediation, but um, let's go back to 1987, okay? So there was a man called, um, his name was David Strawn. He served as a Florida circuit court judge, sheriff. He's a professorial lecturer at University of Florida's law school. And while practicing law, he led the courts to um, to um, mediation as the chair of the state's legislative study uh, and commission on ADR. So he wrote a book. This was the first book I read when I was like, I think I want to become a mediator. And it was called Dispute Management, How to End the Litigation Problem. And in in the preface of the book, he, um, he, he actually wrote, in Florida, we have applied several of the basic concepts beginning with legislation adopting or adopted in 1987. By 94, these methods had resulted in an estimated 80% reduction of the number of cases which judges and juries were required to decide, and by 2003 found mediation as the primary form of dispute resolution in the in the state of Florida. As of February 2023, there were 5,962 individual certified mediators in the state of Florida. Um, Particularly with family, which is what I do primarily, there's 2,313 certified family mediators dealing with family issues. There's 215 dependency mediators dealing with the dependency court, and the rest are spread out between county circuit and appellate. But for the millions of people that do live in Florida, that's not that many mediators to take on all of the family cases. Another fascinating tidbit that most people don't know about family law is all the things that were afforded under the United States Constitution do not exist in family law. There's no trial by jury. You have one individual, judge, jury, executioner. You don't get an attorney if you cannot afford one to be placed. That's criminal law, not family law. And then people say all the time, oh, they lied, they lied, they're a liar, perjury. No, it's sort of kind of assumed in family law that everybody lies. So the things that we're used to, that we see on TV or even that are in our Constitution, not in family court. And I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you really want one person 
to decide your entire f- the fate of your family. And sometimes I get, yes. I'm like, are you sure about that? Let me tell you a story. And I share my 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 story with them. Or I've got, you know, I mean, I've been I've done over 3,000 mediations, so I've got plenty of stories. I'm like, okay, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what a judge has said. Like recently, you know, a 15-year-old said, I want nothing to do with my father. So when he did his final ruling, he said, um, he said, I don't care that you don't want to see your father. Public policy of this state doesn't give you that right. Therefore, I'm ordering you to reunification therapy with your father two times a week, and you can work out whatever issues you've got in therapy with a trained professional. And that was the judge's ruling, which was pretty awesome. Um, in Florida, public policy, so this changed... I think around 2011, and that was you. You you had alluded to the tender years doctrine, um, and that was around the time that uh, the University of Arizona had uncovered from their ten year study of, of ACODs or adult children of divorce, they had uncovered the fallacies that created the tender years doctrine. Right, and that was when everything, at least in Florida, started to shift. When they uncovered that, they released that to the American Bar Association. They took that to the individual states. The states then adopted different variations of their finding. Florida adopted yeah. every single finding except for one, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. the presumption or the premise of equal time sharing. But they changed the child support calculation, Ginger, to a one-size-fits-all 50-50 calculation. So if you didn't do 50-50, child support made no sense because it was based on equal. So if you didn't do equal, well, the money that used to be there wasn't there anymore. They did that in an effort to start to push people to more equal time sharing. Yeah, that's very smart. Um, in the Erasing Family documentary, we talk a lot about how child support incentivizes custody battles. And also to go back to one of the stories in the film, Dizzy, um, and Zara Ashland, he's someone who's bankrupted by child support, spends time in jail, and he finally can pay it off when his kids are adults. And he says, the worst part of this is I'm paying off interest. It doesn't go to my kids. Yeah. It doesn't go to my act. It goes to the state. It goes to the state. Awful. And and people's lives are, are are destroyed by this. And we also showed um, in South Carolina how there's so many dads who, and this is a discussion for another time, who are just they're not deadbeat, they're dead broke. Yeah, you're putting men in jail, and it's mainly men who they don't have the means to pay. And we can make all the moral arguments we want, but putting someone in jail who's already poor, you take away the livelihood he has. You're putting a burden on the taxpayers. It's about $75,000 a year to put someone in jail, depending on the state. Um, And, I mean, you're destroying this person's life in connection with the kids, and then you say, well, you're only good for money, so then it makes men withdraw more from their kids. And we also have a very big problem now, which I'm sure you... You know, um, we've seen Florida, but it's 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 a national problem that income and money isn't what it used to be. Right. The man is the provider isn't what it used to be. So, cha- so it's to support two different households. The money. Should I, I always feel like the, the divorce laws were invented thinking of a very very rich man who leaves his wife to buy a Ferrari to marry his mistress, and the poor woman has never worked a day in her life and has an eighth grade education. Yep. 
And that's not what happens anymore. Yeah. Most men are financially destroyed after divorce, with the exception of like the people in the upper five or ten percent. Join me next episode as we conclude our conversation with Ginger Gentile. Occasionally, Sydney and I will be releasing Q&A bonus episodes where we will answer your questions and give you a personal shout out. If you have a comment or question regarding anything that we discuss, email us at info at iChatMediation.com. That's info at iChat, I-C-H-A-T, Mediation.com. And stay tuned to hear your shout out and have your question answered here on the show. For more information about my services or to schedule your mediation with me using my iChat Mediation virtual platform built by Cisco Communications, visit me online at imediateinc.com. Call me at 561-262-9121, toll free at 877-822-1479, or email me at mbrickman at iChatMediation.com.